an ambiguous entry appeared in the announcements from the Office of Management and Budget announcing in mid-January the potential publication of a notice of proposed rulemaking that would expand OSHA's prerogative or claimed prerogative to bring third-party persons on to an employer's worksite in accompaniment with a compliance safety and health officer during inspections. We're going to talk about that today on this, the February 22nd, 2023 episode of the OSHA 3030. Welcome, everyone, to the OSHA 3030. I'm Monish Rath. I'm a partner at the law firm Keller and Heckman right here in Washington, D.C., and I'm lucky today I'm joined by my friend and OSHA, fellow OSHA attorney here at Keller and Heckman, Taylor Johnson. Taylor, thank you very much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me. Pleasure to be here. Well, it's my pleasure to have you here, and I think we had a great topic. This is a topic that we in the employer side community have followed for many years. So why don't we get right into it? Because I think this is going to be among the most important developments of the year 2023 in the field of OSHA law. Yeah, I completely agree. And so what we're going to do is start with um, just going over the sections of OSHA regulations that discuss uh, this idea of accompaniment uh, on inspections. Then we'll discuss the 2013 Fairfax memo, uh, which is sort of a very important you know, document in telling the story. Right. And then we'll talk about some legal challenges that the Fairfax memo encountered when it was published. Well, it looks like almost a decade ago. That's right. That's right. And then what brings us here today, this 2023, uh, you know, notice of, of a proposed rule that, that could be coming down the pipe here um, in May of, of this year and what that's going to mean. Finally, Taylor, we should finish off the way we always do with some practical takeaway items for the members of the OSHA 3030 community on what they should do in light of this development. Well, Taylor, why don't we start with the basic statement of law on a compliance safety and health officer or COSHO's ability to have third persons accompany him on or her on an inspection. Right. So the key language here specifically is in 29 CFR 1903.08C. And it says that the representatives authorized by employees shall be employees of the employer. However, uh, if in the judgment of the compliance safety and health officer, a good cause has been shown why accompaniment by a third party who is not an employee of the employer. And that's really the key language. So a third party who's not an employee of the employer is reasonably necessary to conduct the inspection, then that person would be permitted to accompany during the inspection. Yeah, that's interesting language. So so just breaking it down a little bit, uh, what it basically says in the first sentence is that a compliance safety and health officer, when conducting a physical inspection, can impose upon the employer that a, a an employee rep can accompany the the uh, compliance officer on the inspection. And this typically means one of two things. Either a union rep who's an employee of the company, or it could be that the worksite is non-unionized and the employees can designate an authorized representative of the non-unionized employees to accompany the compliance officer. Then what this this reg set states is that if there is a third party who's not an employee that the compliance officer would like to have accompany them, 
it would have to be because of good cause shown that that third person, that outsider non-employee is reasonably necessary, necessary to conduct an effective and thorough inspection because of some specialized knowledge. They might be, for example, an industrial hygienist or a safety engineer, or maybe a specialist in aspects of process safety management or confined spaces that the maybe the compliance officer lacks that that background knowledge and would benefit from uh, having the accompaniment of a third person who has that knowledge. That requires, however, that that knowledge be, as reposed in that third person, reasonably necessary to conduct the investigation. Right. And I believe that what the phrase means is that there's nobody else in the area office that has that knowledge, thus also making it reasonably necessary to use a third person. So that's that's the two ways I look at the phrase reasonably necessary, yeah. Taylor. And I think that, that that has been the standard that employers have operated under when looking at inspections for several decades. So for the longest period of time, employers would see uh, compliance officers and for the most part lacking any justification or good cause to, to be able to demonstrate reasonable necessity. The, the inspection was either conducted by the compliance officer and an employee union rep or by the compliance officer and a non-unionized employee authorized representative or just by the compliance officer. And I think that actually, that third category has been the most typical paradigm that I've seen uh, is just that the compliance officer goes by themselves in non-unionized settings. And so, so then one day after decades of this understanding between employers and compliance officers, the the agency through one of their directors, Richard Fairfax, who I should point out is Richard Fairfax is a universally highly regarded, very well respected individual. I think he's highly regarded by by folks inside the government. He's regard highly regarded by folks who are on the employer side of of the mutual process of trying to improve workplace safety, and as well by uh, employee representatives who know him. And so he wrote a memo that was later referred to as the Fairfax memo. Interestingly, I think that there was more than one memorandum on, on different subject matters that he wrote in his last couple of years uh, in office that are severally referred to as the Fairfax memo. So his name endures, but, but in the context of the accompaniment with inspectors, the Fairfax memo refers to a letter of interpretation that Richard Fairfax wrote in, in 2013. And he essentially in that memo expanded what you just described Taylor, which was the idea that if it's reasonably necessary, then a non-employee specialist could accompany a compliance officer. And then he expands it in 2013. That's right. Yeah. You know, the, the letter of interpretation essentially states that these non-employees are permitted to accompany uh, OSHA during the walk around portion of an inspection. And then specifically sort of gets into examples of who these non-employees would be. And the memo addresses union officials and labor organizations that do not, did not currently at the time represent the employer's employees and community organizers. So that's sort of the big part of the memo that, you know, set off some, some alarm bells. Right, right. And I want to be clear about this. This is a memorandum that not only covers the possibility that a compliance officer can bring in maybe a union official who does not represent the employer's employees, but this may be a work site that is not unionized at all. Right. But perhaps more intriguing, it could be a unionized work site with a different and competitive union representing that work site. The ambiguity, the silence on that subject leaves that open as a possibility clearly covered within the scope of this letter of, of interpretation. So it's a broad expansion of the uh, 1908.3. Yep. Okay, well, let's keep going. So 
Richard Fairfax issues the the Fairfax memo of 2013 and and promptly thereafter there is an inspection with a compliance officer entering the the motor assembly plant in Canton, Mississippi for Nissan North America uh, Motors. And that that's an interesting inspection. That's right. So basically following on the Fairfax memo here, um, OSHA makes a decision to allow union backers at a non-unionized Nissan plant uh, to accompany OSHA during the inspection. So essentially taking the Fairfax memo and putting it into play here. Right. So now you have a longstanding rule and it's been suddenly substantially expanded by the Richard Fairfax memo. And then OSHA enters the Nissan plant in Canton, Mississippi, and wishes to exercise the the privilege of, that the, it believes has been afforded under the Fairfax memo. That's right. And Nissan objects. Yeah, they certainly do. The case was brought to court and then settled um, in 2016, although you know not on the merits. Um, basically, what happened is that union advocates were allowed to become members of the plant safety committee. And so therefore the case was dropped and then it was settled in that way. These safety committees can be like quality circles in a sense where they are, they're multi-faction representatives formed committees. So there might be somebody from management, somebody specifically from safety and health, some workers who maybe operate the machinery. If there's a union on site, then there might be a union representative employee in this safety and health circle or safety committee. And that that is a typical formation when you see manufacturing sites that we work with for these kinds of safety-related quality circles. So that that seems to be the the bargaining chip that the union was able to extract off of management right. was to get a seat on the safety committee. Right. So that that case disappears, and and the court was never given a chance to rule on the sufficiency, the legal sufficiency of the Fairfax memo. Right, that's right. And so then what we see is another case pop up um, in 2016. This was a legal challenge brought by the National Federation of Independent Businesses. Manish, you actually served on the board of advisors uh, for NFIB's legal foundation uh, for quite some time. Well, that's right. The National Federation of Independent Businesses is a remarkable organization. It's headquartered here in Washington, D.C. with uh, offices all around the country. And it's the voice for small businesses. It is a a form of a chamber of commerce for small businesses in particular, and their advocacy on constitutional rights and labor and employment law issues here in Washington is has just been a, a remarkable track record. And they were a prominent participant in challenging OSHA's COVID rule during during the COVID era. But prior to that, they were also at the forefront of challenging this Richard Fairfax memo. Yeah. Uh, and so they brought suit in 2016, late 2016, right after the Nissan Motors uh, case was was withdrawn, right? Right, exactly. And exactly. so NFIB brings a suit against OSHA in the Northern District of Texas, and OSHA files a motion to dismiss the NFIB's suit. They state the position to the court that they don't believe that they have exceeded the authority given to them by Congress under the Occupational Safety and Health Act of 1970, and that the Fairfax memo is merely a restatement of that which is afforded to the agency under the act and by extension also under 1903. So, so this is the position that they take. They, they hope that they get some sympathy with the Northern District of Texas, and it does go to the court for, for a ruling. That's right. And what happens is that the court denies OSHA's motion to dismiss. So this this case was proceeding to to be ruled on on the merits. 
the court finds that NFIB had sufficiently alleged an injury. We're sort of at the point where we're going to wait for finally to get a decision on, on one of these with respect to the merits. But then in, what ends up happening is that OSHA revokes the Fairfax memo on April 25th of 2017. So the case is then mooted. And so we weren't really able to see how the judge would have ruled on, on the merits. Yeah, that's right, Taylor. And uh, I want to be clear about the motion to dismiss. A motion to dismiss typically tests the sufficiency of the claim. So OSHA was saying, you, the NFIB, have stated a claim where there's no law supporting you or where you have no injury or no standing, no relief can be granted to you for one reason or another, just looking at nothing else but the sufficiency of the four corners of the complaint itself. It never got through discovery and to a motion for summary judgment, and it never got to a trial. And that's that's an important point. This, this was under a motion to dismiss which is the preliminary test of the sufficiency of the, of the complaint, which is the initial pleading followed by NFIB. So what the court's basically saying is, yeah, it looks like this is a sufficient complaint. They have properly stated, NFIB has properly stated a claim against OSHA upon which a court could uh, grant some kind of relief. Right. That was enough for OSHA to say, well, maybe we don't want this to go to an adjudication on the merits of the question. And they rescinded the Fairfax memo early the following year. That's or, right. That was about about four years later. Is that right? Well, 2016 was when the the NFIB case was filed, and so and then the next year, 2017, the Fairfax memo was rescinded. So this all takes place within inside of the space of of maybe 12 to 14 months. Yeah, exactly. Uh, thank you. Good job, Taylor. And so, so they rescind the uh, the Fairfax memo, and. It's been, mainly been silent for the subsequent oh, six years. Uh, the agency has been silent on this subject, and we we really believed at the time of the withdrawal that that OSHA had seen the the vulnerability to legal challenge of this position that non-employees could enter the premise if they were union employees. In other words, they didn't bring necessarily any spe- special science within the fields of safety and health to the table, to the benefit of, of a compliance officer. Their their main quality that uh, caused them to be selected by the co-show was the fact that they belonged to a union. Right, exactly. And and at least OSHA signals at the time when they rescinded the memo that, I mean, they even say that due to the regulations themselves, the, the 1903.8 that we discussed, that the Fairfax memo or, or something like that is no longer necessary. And so that did seem to be the stance that the agency was going to take, you know, and, and was until very recently. Many of us on the employer side thought it peculiar that the agency basically withdrew the memo saying that in light of 1903.8, the Fairfax memo was not necessary, yet the Fairfax memo was interpreting 1903.8. So it would have not been necessary at the time of its promulgation as well, or issuance, I should say. And, And so that really didn't make sense that it was spontaneously unnecessary in April of 2017. Nevertheless, this idea the, under the regulation still persists that OSHA may bring a third-party non-employee onto the site to accompany a COSHO during an inspection, a compliance officer during an inspection, provided that the officer can show good cause that that third party's presence is reasonably necessary in order to make a, an inspection effective and thorough. And again, I think that that involves at least two qualities. The reasonable necessity criterion can be branched out into two sub-criteria. And one of them is that the expertise is reasonably necessary for the purpose of the inspection. 
The second is that the person that they've selected is reasonably necessary. In other words, they don't have that that expertise from any of the employee ranks who could represent the employees or from anyone within that area office. So I think it's important for employers to continue to think of reasonable necessity in all of its facets and all of its dimensions when questioning whether or not they must relinquish their own property rights to a third-party non-employee to enter the premise and accompany an inspector. So this is a rule that was been around for decades, and then Richard Fairfax spontaneously expands it. There have been some some twists and turns with the Nissan case in Canton, Mississippi, and then the NFIB suit in the Northern District of Texas. And, and after six years of lying dormant, it rises again from the deep in the form of this Office of Management and Budget announcement that OSHA intends to publish a, an NPRM in just a few months, in May of 2023. That's right. So this is, you know, in the, for the first time in the unified agenda, sort of signaling that OSHA plans to issue a notice of proposed rulemaking, like you said, in May. And um, what it's going to do is it says, you know, clarify positions discussed in the Fairfax memo. What it exactly says, the language is that it's going to clarify the right of worker, the rights of workers and certified bargaining units uh, to specify a worker or union representative to accompany an OSHA inspector during an inspection. And then this is the key language, regardless of whether the representative is an employee of the employer. So essentially taking the Fairfax memo and, and bringing it back to life here. Well, I think that's right, Taylor. There's no other way to read that the employees can specify a representative from a union, regardless of whether he's an employee, to accompany a, a physical inspection or a walk around. Because that that is silent on the question of whether they bring any special expertise to the table as called for under the right. 1903 language, the regulatory, the standard, the regulatory language. So that's where we are. We expect that a notice of proposed rulemaking would be forthcoming in May of 2023. Right now, it appears to me to be under review by OIRA, which is a necessary step before publication in the Federal Register. That's the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs under the OMB. And that that step is sort of the last step before you see publication with the Federal Register. So we'll we'll find out more details. I think this is very ambiguous, this notice uh, at the OMB and the description of what they intend to publish. But we'll find out more details only when OSHA reveals them in the form of a an NPRM, a notice of proposed rulemaking. Without that, there's really nothing more except for employers to watch and wait and and keep an eye out for the notice of proposed rulemaking. Right. Yeah, we've certainly seen a variety of reactions uh, to this notice of proposed rulemaking. One of them that was interesting is, is Fairfax himself recently said that he, he's concerned that the proposed rule could put unnecessary pressure on OSHA inspectors. Yeah, it's interesting that Richard Fairfax uh, made that statement when uh, it was announced that this was under OIRA or OMB review. Yeah, And I think that's right. It certainly slows down the process for, for the compliance officer to go through that process of making a probable cause Absolutely. of necessity. So we'll see what happens, uh, what kind of employer opposition, uh, what kind of uh, uh, other comments we get from all the other affected stakeholders. But I think, as I said before, Taylor, the first thing that we would advise employers to do in light of this OMB announcement is to to stay up to date with the Federal Register and any announcements of a notice of proposed rulemaking. Absolutely. And then the next would be to consider drafting comments um, to sort of, you know, prepare those arguments and be ready for when the comment deadline is announced um, to, to certainly, you know, weigh in on this from the employer perspective. Yeah, that's right, Taylor. And to be active with your your communities of trade associations, industry groups, et cetera, local and uh, U.S. national chambers of commerce, 
to make sure that they know that you support involvement in the dialogue, the notice and comment rulemaking process. And then I think also just making sure that your plant managers, um, your, you know, your safety and health folks on the ground are, you know, aware of this and, and aware of the current status of things. You know, the, the proposed rulemaking is just that, a notice of a proposed rule, just making sure that, you know, they, they sort of know, you know, what, what isn't and isn't allowed when it comes to accompaniment on inspections at this point in time. That's a great point, Taylor. You know that this program, the OSHA 3030, our, our target core audience is folks, attorneys in the Office of General Counsel at the great corporations across America, as well as safety and health professionals, industrial hygienists, safety engineers. So your point is well taken that that you who are listening to this Social 3030 episode should make sure that you report up to the highest levels of your organization to make sure they're aware of how incredibly important this is. Whether you're a unionized employer or some of your establishments are unionized or whether they are not unionized, this still has incredible importance to the employer community. And it only will be a notice and comment rulemaking that'll involve a rich supply of, of input from stakeholders if it gets the support from the highest levels of organizations, employers like those employers that are listening in today through their Office of General Counsel, their safety and uh, health professionals. I think so. that's a great point, Taylor, and I'm, I'm glad you brought it up. Finally, I think it's important to train plant managers and the managerial staff at the establishments to be prepared how to handle inspections, because this is going to be one of those issues that comes up during an inspection. Absolutely. Absolutely. Taylor, you do that kind of training. I know I've done it many, many times, and you'll be you'll be presenting to a community of safety and health professionals in Texas later this year, if I'm not mistaken, that's right. that's on specifically right. this subject. Exactly. How to better prepare for inspections. Yep. Exactly. And that's something that every employer, I think, should should be training on and staying ready on. Certainly. Okay, well, Taylor, that's the last of the of this episode's OSHA 3030, and we've wrapped it up in just under 30 minutes, which is perfect. This episode, along with all of our episodes, we're probably at around 110 or 12 episodes so far, and all of them are on our website, khlaw.com. So check them out, go back, look through some other old episodes and see if there's any that you missed that it might be of interest. And, and, and stay in touch with us through LinkedIn. Subscribe to this episode as a podcast. We, we rebroadcast everything as a podcast. And if you subscribe, it'll just automatically download. And please remember to, to rate or like this program so that it persists in search results when others try and find it as a podcast. Uh, also, we'll republish this with the slides and audio as a YouTube video, and that'll be housed on our website, but you can also get it by searching on YouTube. Right. Either search the OSHA 3030 or Monish Rath, Taylor Johnson, and it should come up. With that said, we're thankful to all of you for joining us on this episode of the OSHA 3030. We'll be back next month on March 22nd, 1 p.m. Eastern, always on uh, Wednesday and always at 1 p.m. Eastern. Uh, this episode was pre-recorded, so we will not be continuing forward with an off-the-record session this month, February 2023. So we're grateful to all of you for participating this month. And if you have questions, by all means, if you email them or shut us a phone call, we'll We'll be happy to chat with you about any questions you might have. Our sister programs, the Tosca 3030 and the Reach 3030, come back on April 12th, 2023. If you're not on their lists, let me know, and we can get you on those lists so that you're, you're subscribed. Taylor Johnson, thank you very much for joining us today. Uh, on behalf of Taylor, all of the folks here at Keller and Heckman who helped bring this show, and on my own behalf, uh, thank you all for participating in this month's OSHA 3030. And we look forward to seeing you again next month. And until then, stay safe. Mm -hmm.